Recently, Joe Biden said this. Yes, and by the way, what you all know, but most people don't know, unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode number five of the Removing Barriers podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about the black culture and whether it is a monolith. So the question is, was Joe Biden right? Well, when he said that he got a lot of backlash by the media, conservative media especially. But honestly, I think he was at least politically. Politically, the black community tends to vote one way, and that is Democrat. Barack Obama got 95 and 93% of the vote, respectively. John Kerry and Hillary Clinton got 88% of the vote, respectively. You know, no political party is going to get 100% of any demographic vote. So therefore, 95%, 90% average, to me, that's that's practically all. Pretty much. That's practically all. So, yeah, politically, when they run all their data engineers and data science start looking at all, all our data and look and see what our customs and our norms are historically and all the stuff that we do, Joe Biden is right because he does all that stuff. He hire all his data scientists and data engineers that will give him all this information. And he knows that based on what his people are telling him, that politically, yes, politically, yes, the black African-Americans are a monolith when it comes to voting. And I don't know if you ever heard of Antonia Okafor. Mm-hmm. She's a, a second-generation Nigerian-American, and now she's a gun, gun rights advocate. But before she was a, a Democrat, and she said she was at an Obama campaign luncheon in 2012. Mm-hmm. And a concern was that they weren't hearing much about the Afri- African-American community. And so the question that they asked one of the representatives was, are there any plans to reach out to the African-American community? And the representative responded by saying, we got 95% of the vote last time. We do not need to focus on them. So that tells you that Yes, they they know what they're going to, what they're going to get. They can book it that they're going to get at least ninety percent of the black vote. So why are they going to focus on the black vote when they are already going to get most of it anyway? And I think and I think the backlash was a little bit premature because he's a politician and he's speaking politically. And I think the answer is definitely yes. He was right in many other ways, maybe not, but politically, I would say so. I would say you're right. Politically, he was right that uh, the African-Americans are a monolith politically. Uh, But I may even go so far as to say that in many other ways, culturally, they are as well. Now, I don't mean that 90% of um, African-American culture is all the same, or even that 90% of so-called black people in the country are the same, because anyone 
would look at a group of people that have a shared ancestry or shared history. Let's say the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Koreans, for example. You've all got that similar Asian ancestry, but no one in their right mind would ever say that the Chinese culture is the same as the Japanese culture or the Korean culture. And even within their cultures, there are many different things that, that, that differentiate between one another. So in that way, he's wrong. But there are significant percentages when we talk about the elements of culture. Uh, we talk about money, we talk about uh, music, we talk about values, we talk about all those different things that make up culture, behavior, and all those things. Yeah, they're, they're fairly similar. So you think that the African Americans are a monolith in other areas than just politically? Yes, not as, not as much not as much as they are politically, but there's definitely, uh, there's definitely a few areas, not all, but a few areas where you can paint broad strokes. What are, what are some of those areas? So in my opinion, and I could be wrong about this, in my opinion, when we're talking specifically African-American culture, you will find more commonality and more similarities, let me put it that way, in terms of the music that they consume, the way that they spend their money, some of their values, for the most part, are, are, are extremely similar. So I wouldn't, maybe monolith isn't the right word, but definitely broad strokes. You can paint with fairly broad strokes. Of course, again, not everyone in the African-American culture is the same. And there's a very small sliver percentage that are, say, conservative, for example. So, so obviously when Joe Biden says that the African-American culture is the same. He's talking politically. He's obviously not saying that 100% of right. African-American culture is Democrat. You know what I mean? That's not what right. he's but saying. But do you think he, that the African-American music, cultural, culturally the music, do you think that is consumed more, mostly by African-Americans or by Caucasians? So I believe that it's mostly consumed by two demographics of people. African-Americans and Hispanics, they make up 71% of people who consume, let's say, for example, hip-hop. And of that 71%, 60% also in, uh, consume R&B. So we're talking hip-hop, rap, R&B. 71% of the African-American culture and Hispanic culture consumes that. So that's something you could probably paint with a broad with a broad brush. That's That's what I mean by... In some ways, he was right, even culturally. Yeah, that's right. interesting because interesting also that you make you said money because I can I can see it in, when it comes to music because we tend to consume the same type of music, right. and unfortunately, music isn't really helping help helping the cause in terms of it tends to be extremely graphic at times. You know, you think about or like objectionable. It's just really right. But you think about if Cardi B having a song at the top of the chart for weeks. And if you if you read the lyrics, it's basically pornography. Mm -hmm. You know, so things like that, it doesn't really help the culture. But when it comes to money as well, there's some interesting statistics that you have that you were sharing with me that show that the, when it comes to money, people that consume this kind of music also does what? Right. So... I, I think before I answer that question, it's, it's important to point out that there was a time where people thought that 80% of rap or hip hop music was consumed by a so-called quote unquote white audience. You and I don't believe in the terms black or white, but I'm just 
uh, just for the sake of explaining. And they, they later found, found out that this isn't necessarily true. It's about 71% Black and Hispanic. And to tie that there, the things that we consume will affect how we behave. The things that we consume, whether they be through the ear gate, whether it's music that we listen to, whether we consume it through the eye gate, the shows that we watch, the things that we um, consume in that particular way, the things that we read, we take in, they will, they, they, they form and shape the way that we think our values and in many ways our conscience as well. And so we behave accordingly. And so let's take, for example, music. We already said that 71% of blacks and Hispanics consume what we would so call so-called black music, rap, hip hop, R&B. And the other 20 something percent, 29% are whites, Asians, and those of mixed, uh, mixed, um, ethnic identities. And so, so it's, it's interesting to note that when it comes to hip hop, people who listen to hip hop, okay. It, some of these statistics that I found are incredible. Okay. So if you, and we're going to tie it to money because you're talking about money. If you're a listener of hip hop, 20%, I got the statistic here, 20% of hip hop listeners are in the market for a new car in the next six months. And that's because the music promotes. The music glorifies it. You can't watch a rap or hip hop video without seeing the the woman and the car. And the car, exactly. The flashy clothes, the flashy shoes. Here's another statistic. 13%, 13% of hip hop listeners buy brand new clothes weekly. Wow. <laughs> weekly. That made me look bad because I don't really buy new clothes. <laughs> and I probably buy new clothes, what, annually? I don't know, but I don't They're, know when I buy, buy new clothes. They have significant purchasing power. The the hip hop demographic, the, the listeners of hip hop, rap, R and B, all of those in that seventy one percent, they have the ability and they've demonstrated the capability of spending five hundred billion dollars every year. But the average income of the people in these households, the average household is $50,000. So that would imply that they are leaning into some kind of uh, debt. Um, their credit cards, maybe borrowing, maybe payday loans are so common. That's why you find yeah. payday loans in, in, in those neighborhoods and not really in any other areas. Dave Ramsey must be rolling over in his grave because... <laughs> he ain't talk- quite dead yet, but, but he's rolling over. But if you think about that, though, all, the, all that money that is being spent, and yet the, the student loan crisis that's also... Yes. ...strongly affects the African-American community as well, that how many loans we could have paid off if we didn't buy that new car on a car loan right that those new clothes every week mm-hmm. maybe we could have owned a home as well if, mm-hmm. if we managed it the money was being managed better right so the music no no so no. that that also affect not just the music the music the music stemming from the music comes the 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 money is the behavior with money and then that stems down to you know the lack of housing yes not being made, maybe not be being able to afford better housing that they that they talk about and stuff like Everything that. Everything that would be an indicator for poverty in some way or another. 
the inability to achieve the so-called American dream is tied to what we do with money. And in the African-American culture, as Joe Biden put it, that inability to handle money properly, that we'll call it financial illiteracy, is tied to the things they're glorifying in their music. And so that, that has a significant impact on culture. This is why I disagree with people that say, oh, it's just music. Oh, it's just fun. Oh, we're just listening to it. That's actually not the case. I, I mentioned this before. One of the, one of the more, prof- one of the profound statements in the Bible to me when I read it is, uh, behold the man. And I think Pilate was saying that to the people when they, when they were about to crucify Jesus and they asked for Barabbas instead. And Pilate said, behold the man. So, um, now when we behold something, we are gazing intently. We're looking to it. We're studying it. We're imbibing it. It's becoming a part of us. That's part of what beholding means. And so if you look towards something, if you're beholding something, and in this case, they're beholding, let's say, you know, whatever they're glorifying in rap or hip hop videos and everything, that's going to become how you behave. And we see that in the culture. And so it's, it's, it's a sad thing to see because it doesn't just affect the person. It affects the person. It affects their household. It affects their children. Because if you're the parent and you're, you're settled down with debt, with, with, um, what do they call the debt that, um, consumer consumer debt? Yes. They're saddled by consumer debt. They don't own the houses they live in. They are only making about $50,000 a year or less. That's going to affect your children a lot more than anything Black Lives Matter tells you that you have to be worrying about. Yeah, but that's interesting because there's another stat I was looking at, I heard, and it said that the the average African-American woman drive a more expensive car than the average white American woman. But the average white American woman makes more than the average black American woman. No, we hold can, on, hold on. So, so the broker, so the broker person is driving a nicer car than the more well-off person. Right. We, wow. And then we can get into the detail. Well, we probably not won't get into that in this podcast, whether or not what causes that well, well gap or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is even they, there is, a gap, obviously, based upon the study, but the study also concluded that the black woman is driving a more expensive car, mm-hmm. usually, than the Caucasian woman. And that's interesting because it all go back, maybe go back to how we manage the money, or you can argue it might be because of some sort of wealth gap or whatever the case may be. Mm. But if you have less money or less income coming in, but you're driving a more expensive car, that means the car to you makes a big is making a statement rather than maybe a home mm-hmm. or not being in student debt mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. And it's interesting how the music is tied to the money mm-hmm. because there, you know, the way you manage your money, you know, money is not there. Money is not the most important thing. But as Dave Ramsey always say, money does touch every area of your life. Big time. You know, if you look at someone budget or their, their bank statement you can tell a whole lot about them based on how they spend their money because money touch every area of your life True. You know? in order for you to get to work you have to spend money because you have to put gas in your car or you have to pay public transportation you know money can tell me where you shop money can tell me what where you eat it, it just touch every area of our, of our lives and 
the, and if that is stemming from the music, where we have a certain percentage of the people that listen to certain type of the music is behaving a certain way, that that kind of show me that the music does are more influential than yeah. we will even admit. Mm-hmm. And there was this pastor I was listening to, and I don't know I don't know his name, and I don't think I would align myself with him doctrinally on many things. He mm-hmm. I think he was more of a Pentecostal type preacher. And he was preaching a message on music in the black culture. And a statement he made in, in the message was that the spirit of the creator goes with his creation. And he was saying that a lot of these music, actually, and some, a lot of these musicians actually are demon-possessed. I don't know how true that is or not, but he, sent, he presents a bunch of evidences to show what he was saying and or at least heavily influenced by them right, right. so i wonder you know you yeah, talk about music heavily influenced the, the spirit of the creator goes with the creation comes down to money that you spend all these things and another thing about the talking about whether the african community is a monolith you're talking about values and faith as well yes and yes. when you think about even though majority of the black com- African American community wouldn't, you wouldn't find most of them being atheists or believing or dabble in witchcraft or stuff like that. Very few of them would say openly, like, "Oh, I'm an atheist" or "I don't believe in God." Or, you know, very few of them would say that. They have some sort of religious underpinning. They have, they're 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 a religious superstitious people. I would say that for sure. But they, they tend also to be in a lot of churches that don't truly preach the gospel. They're though. they're kept completely ignorant to the truth. Right, yeah. because we have people like the Reverend Reverend Al Sharpton oh. and Jesse Jackson and those kind of people that you can say when was the last time they truly preach sin and repentance from sin? Mm-hmm. It's all about social justice, all about a social gospel, which you can find nowhere in the Bible. True, and. Even though you can, you you will find a lot of them align when it comes to faith and values. You find a lot of them align when it comes to money, and a lot of them align when it comes to to uh, music. When you, if you go back to the churches, it's empty messages. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, and even going back to Reverend Al Chopton and Jesse Jackson, a lot of these folks kind of keep the folks right where they are because. And in just my opinion, that's where they get their paycheck from. It benefits them, yeah. Because mm-hmm. they, where where is the the life changing messages from these men? Because if the gospel were to penetrate their hearts, everything about them would change, from what music they listen to down to how they handle their money. And so, if they're not listening to music that glorifies the material things any longer or sinful things any longer, their money will follow suit and they would lose their paycheck. The Al Sharpton, T.D. Jakes type of the world would lose their paycheck. So it's in their best interest to keep the the African-American culture, I'll put that in quotes, ignorant about those particular things. And that's all under the umbrella of culture. The music, the money, the faith, the values, how people behave, all of that falls under that umbrella. Definitely. So I was thinking... Are some of the ills facing the African American community? Is it mostly cultural or is it mostly racial? Is it the reason why I asked that question is there was some time ago there was a, a young man by the name of Coleman Hughes 
who was on the Dave Rubin show. Now, I don't necessarily align myself with Dave Rubin, so to speak. So I'm not necessarily promoting Dave Rubin show nor Coleman News. But it was interesting because he said something that you and I can definitely identify with. So, and they were talking about systemic racism. And we dealt with systemic racism in episode number two. So if you want to know what exactly we think about systemic racism, at least, you can listen to episode number two. But Coleman Hughes concluded that a lot of the issues in the African-American community has to do with culture. He then proceeded to compare and conscious the African-American culture to the Caribbean-American culture. Here's a clip from, from his discourse with Dave Rubin because I think Coleman Hughes said it much better than I would. There, there's a bigger picture way to test the systemic racism hypothesis, which is to take two populations where it's, it's a very messy, crude science experiment, but to take two populations where you're holding systemic racism constant, namely black Americans like myself and black immigrants, especially black immigrants from the West Indies and their children. So you're talking about immigrants from Jamaica, Barbados, other places in the West Indies, and specifically their children, their American-born children. So these are people you could not tell apart from black. Like you couldn't tell if I didn't tell you that I wasn't the child of a Jamaican immigrant or mm-hmm. something, right? And you find the, the, the thing about these is that these two populations differ in many ways. Some, some, some ways are very hard to quantify, but they differ culturally. They differ for all kinds of reasons, um, because partially because the kind of immigrant who gets out of a Jamaica differs systematically. It's going to be disproportionately intelligent, disproportionately hardworking. Whatever the traits are that get you from Jamaica to New York, say, that's a cluster of attributes that that makes that population differ. But there's there's one thing that is not different, which is they are subjected to whatever level of systemic racism exists. So T- Thomas Sowell, back in the 70s, he, he showed that uh, second-generation West Indi- West Indians living in the same city as Black Americans were earning 58% more, right? So they're they're both being treated to whatever degree badly by white people. They're whatever this whatever system you want to suppose is holding Black people back is equally affecting both of them. Uh, the, the Columbia so- sociologist Van Tran has a great essay in which. Uh, um, the, this this difference is, is brought out. You find neighborhoods of of Black Americans right next to neighborhoods of Black West Indians in New York. They're equally segregated from white people, mm-hmm. so it gets rid of you know this the the idea that being segregated by itself or living around people who only look like you is inherently a um, a, a disadvantage. Um, it gets around the, the policing issue because these populations are being police. The police can't tell the difference between a second generation West Indian and and a black person. It gets around whatever level of systemic racism is or isn't in, in the pipeline with regard to schools. And you find wildly different outcomes. You find you know rate of high school graduation much higher for black West Indians. Uh, rate of enrollment in college much higher rate of you know, professional occupations much higher, crime lower, right? So this suggests to me that there are that, that the role of systemic racism to to whatever degree it exists is is minimal at this point. 
uh, and the, 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 there's a whole narrative built around the idea that this is the primary obstacle facing black people. And it's worth noting, I don't, I don't think most black people actually believe this hmm. because, I mean, there, there are various polls to cite here, but there's, there's one from Pew that, that asks black people without, high, without college educations, has, has, race, has your race held you back at all in life? 60% said no. It's a recent Pew poll. Another Gallup poll asked, is bias the main issue facing you in, in, in jobs and housing? 60% again said no. The, uh, the Harvard sociologist Ethan Foss has done extensive polling of the black community and found that disconnected black youth, which are you know, black youth without who aren't in schools and don't have a job, so the people on the lowest rung of society, something, something around 30% of them think the system is rigged and 70% don't. So what what we're getting is we're getting the voices of black people who believe the systemic racism narrative promoted to the to the most powerful uh, media positions in our country. So we're getting the impression that right. this is a uniform view, and it's not. Right. So this is sort of the Jesse Jackson, Sal Sharpton. Yeah. They get moved up because they're given sort of simple answers. Right. So I guess it, it harkens the question, then. I could ask this either way. <laughs> what is it that the West Indian immigrants are doing right, mm -hmm. or what is it that the other folks are doing wrong? Yeah. You, I mean, you can answer that in either direction you want sure. to refer. Well, part, I mean, part of it is just immigration selection factors that I mentioned, right? So the, the kind of Jamaican or Barbadian who makes it off the island to New York is likely to be disproportionately hardworking, dispropor disproportionately X for whatever X factor is, and... So in, in that sense, the, the direct comparison can be misleading, but just analyzing why these two populations differ, you find West Indian immigrants uh, more likely to come from a two-parent home, um, you know, more likely to have had a more classically socially conservative upbringing, which is you, know, you don't talk back to your parents, parents are rather strict. There are downsides, of course, to that style of parenting, but... Basically, what I'm saying is that there are cultural factors that are important that differ between these two groups, right? You find there are, there are many, I mean, this is, this is where the conversation for many people gets especially uncomfortable, yeah. right? It's the idea that every culture, every subculture is identical in the behavioral patterns that are inculcated. And wherever there is, some, wherever there is a disparity in some outcome, it's not possible that culture accounts for some or most of, of that disparity, which I think is a very silly idea. Now you might be wondering, how is this relevant to what we are talking about today? Well, Jay, you are a second generation Caribbean immigrant. So why don't we start out by you telling me how did your family end up in the U.S.? Okay, so... We just listened to Coleman Hughes and he talked about the difference between the African-American culture and someone that's say Caribbean uh, immigrating into immigrating to this country. And my parents came to the country in 1981 and they, I mean, they worked really hard and they worked all sorts of jobs that your average person in the U.S. wouldn't want to work. They were, you know, working the menial jobs, you know, maybe like a and I don't mean menial so as to demean people that do them, but low wage type jobs, waitressing, housekeeping, 
picking fruit, whatever jobs they could find, they did. And because uh, they had five mouths to feed, let's be real about that. So they really had to work. And yet, I never felt growing up that I was deprived of anything. I never felt poor. I never felt um, like we lacked anything. Our family was very, is very tight knit, very close. And that, that was those, the, the values that would somehow uplift victimhood or like inability to do stuff. Just that. Did you guys ever see yourself as African-Americans? No. Um, I'm sure, so, <laughs> I'm sure that there are times we wanted to be because when you're the kid, on the bus and everyone has a particular culture that they're all uh because i went to a predominantly black i went to predominantly black schools my entire life f-rated schools my entire life um and of course they're predominantly black the the population is predominantly black and so you've got all of the things that we're talking about monoliths like everybody listened to hip-hop rap r&b everybody had this way of thinking everyone did um of course when I say everyone, there might be one or two that didn't, but for the majority, if like overwhelmingly, the mentalities that we described in the previous question was what I saw on a daily basis. And we were not like them. And we knew we weren't like them. We simply wanted to, there are times where we wanted to be like them because it's always tough being the odd one out. But our parents did not allow that. They wouldn't allow that music into the house. We would not. We were. We were not allowed to befriend people like that. When I say people like that, I mean people who indulge in that culture, and that's a part of who they were. Because we simply didn't have the same values, and so and so we didn't pick up that way of thinking. How demanding was was that? <laughs> so, my father was. He was very strict. <laughs> I laugh because. Um, audience might think that uh, you know i'm crazy or maybe my, my my father's crazy but i remember a time when i was in high school and my father <laughs> just walked onto the school looking for me to see make sure i wasn't acting up or make sure I was, he wanted to make sure that i saw him to know that i better be acting right that kind of strictness the the, the pushing to succeed or to pushing the pushing to achieve he now, the country that he came from, if your family has no money, your kids don't have to get educated, like period. If you don't have money, you don't go to school. <laughs> and my mom always complains because here in this country, not only do you go to school for free, but they send yellow buses to pick you up and they'll give you a free lunch. What in the world? You better go to school. <laughs> you know? And so because in her country, there's no such thing. If you don't go to money, you don't go to school. And so if you don't have money, you don't go to school. And so he was very much um, intent on pushing us and making sure that we took every single advantage at school. Even if it was, like I said, we went to F-rated schools. These weren't great schools. And we knew we were in F-rated schools. But as I said in, a, in another podcast, all of my siblings have done just fine. We have two that are certified master electricians and, 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 and college educated. I've, I've got all of my siblings have either trade or post-secondary education. And that, so, so this is why I can't wrap my brain around some of the things that African-Americans are complaining about in this country, because I, I think it boils down to, they don't know how good they have it. Yeah. Compared I, I, to other I countries. say that to a lot of folks at, even at work, a lot of times Americans don't know exactly what they have because I'm, a Caribbean immigrant myself, and when I came to the country, I came to go to college, and as I said some time ago, that 
it was the first time I was actually in a predominantly white population. And it was a little bit of a culture shock, not because I was in a primary white co- population, but because the culture was different from, from mine and so much so, so much more different than mine. But so when I look at it, sometimes you compare, the, if we compare and conscious the Caribbean American culture or just the Caribbean culture, which is Caribbean is predominantly black, to the African American culture, we see that parenting, you talk about how strict that was. I know that was strict because I remember when I went down to ask him, I guess, for his blessing in, in quoting you, he said to me, I have two questions. <laughs> and, and I was literally counting. At, at question number 10, I was wondering, <laughs> this man said he had two questions. And he was, he was asking me questions. So I realized, okay, he meant like question one, A, B, C, D, E, and then question two. <laughs> so maybe it was truly two questions, but I know because he was just, he wanted to know as much about me as possible from, I don't even know, but from my entire background, my family, all to up to who I am, what, what, what kind of work I'm doing, what did I study in college, all those things. So I know he was, but in, in terms of parenting, Coleman Hughes did say that um, the Caribbean Americans tend to be in a two-parent household more than African Americans. I don't mm-hmm. know how quite true that is. Um, maybe the ones that actually comes to the U.S., yes, to some extent. But in the Caribbean, I, I'm not quite sure I would agree that the single-parent household in the Caribbean is much different. I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite a 77% like the African American culture. But if I have to give a, give, put a percentage on it, I would say it's probably 50-50. You'll find kids growing up in single-parent household compared to um, a household where there's a mom and a dad. But also, people tend, people tend less to, fathers tend to be want, want to be more involved in their kids' life in the, in the islands to an extent, even if they're not married to the mother, they tend to always want to be involved in the kids' lives somewhat. So the effect of the single family household is not as great as it's up here. And also in the in the islands like of the parenting, folks tend to stay home until they get married, probably. So most of the time you will have multi family household as well, mm-hmm. where you will see maybe a, a, a mother and a father and a grown adult child is still living home. And if that child if that you know, that person have a kid, and usually will bring that kid into the same home they grew up in with their mother and father. So there's still a father figure in the home. You see, you see a lot of that at times because in in the US, when the kid turned 18 or 22 when they finished from college, you know, you basically say fly, birdie, fly. But in the islands, it's more like, okay, I'm going to be here until I get married. So I have, I have siblings who are older than me who still live home because... They're not married. They're yet. not married yet. And mm-hmm. it just seems like they don't you don't leave home until you get married. Up here is a little bit different. So even in parenting, and that's not even just the Caribbean culture. There are many cultures are like that where the, the child is expected to stay with their parents until they stay home. We can argue whether or not that's the biblical model. Some people argue that's the biblical model or not. But, but that, I'm not getting going going to get into that, so so to speak. I'm just showing the conscious in the culture where the kid at eighteen or twenty two at most of the time, it's looking to leave home, while in the islands, it's more 
well, I'm not married yet. I don't have X, Y, and Z yet. I'm going, and it's expected that they will stay home. I think that's a big difference. Do you think that when you came into the country, because it was so expensive to come and you had to go through such a process, do you think that that had any bearing in terms of your work ethic and how, what you decide to do when you come into the country? Like you're, like, is it possible to come into the country and not work hard, especially after well, it's cost you so much to come in? Or well, how? That, yeah, even when I was in college, I I was in college and I and I knew when I was in college that I couldn't afford to change my major. Mm-hmm. I I would see folks changing their major and decide, okay, I'm going to stay extra semester or extra year in college because I changed my semester, or I'm going to skip a class. I know. I remember once I was doing this class. The class, the name of the class was operating system. And this class, I was a computer science major. This class, we were learning the algorithms behind the major op- operating system. And it was mostly based upon a Unix Linux operating system. The class was a tough class. And I remember we got the first assignment, which, we, which would be about, I think that the assignment was going to be 25% of our grade. And it was the first major project we had to write, program we had to write in that class. Mm-hmm. And in that class, we had to write a program to simulate how a scheduler, uh, operating system scheduler work w- in terms of scheduling the processes and all that stuff. And I remember there was this guy sitting in front of me. And I thought this guy was the wise, wisest whiz I have seen. And after we got the assignment for a couple of class, I didn't see him. He sat right in front of me like, what's going on? So I saw him in the hallway and I asked him, what's going on? I haven't seen an operating system. And he said that he decided to drop out of the class because he cannot wrap his head around the program to write the program. Now, when he said that, that resonated with me because I wasn't able to wrap my head around it at that point yet. But I knew mm-hmm. that I couldn't afford to decide to drop out of that class mm-hmm. because I'm here, I'm going to come, and I'm going to, it's going to be four years, and I'm going to finish in four years. Doesn't matter what it takes. I know for sure that I cannot afford to pay for more than four years of college. So whatever it takes, I'm going to get that program written. Long story short, I end up on, I think I got a 93 in the program. It was the second highest in the class. But that that attitude of I am not going to, I cannot afford to fail a class yeah. and I can afford to go longer. And Do that was different. Mm-hmm. That was different in not just the African-American, but just the American student mentality. True. They they tend to be okay. Maybe I will stay next semester. Maybe I'll stay next year. Not all of them, but some of them I see that. But for the international students, most of the international students were of that same frame mind that I cannot afford to fail a class. Because think about it: you fail a class, you're paying three hundred, four hundred dollars to take a class. You have to pay and, that money again. Yeah, and and you were paying like you were paying more than the average student because not, of the not, conversion. Not, well, yes, if you compare the fact that I'm, yeah, I'm com- coming from a weaker currency to a stronger currency, mm-hmm. but that that's not even it. It's just it's just the fact that you know that whosoever is helping you paying that bill, what are you gonna you're gonna tell you can't I can't go to my mom and tell my mom I fail a class. Right. That wasn't that's not gonna be acceptable. You know, it's like you say your mom, your dad was strict. My mom was was strict in terms of schoolwork. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't go to my mom and say, Hey, I failed this class, it's going to be another $400. And to make matters worse, because I was an international student and I was on an F1 visa, which is a student visa, 
in order for me to remain on that visa, I have to carry a full full load. So I had to be, in other words, I have to be a full-time student. So at the college I went to, 12 credits were a full-time student. Mm -hmm. So you could do between 12 and 17 credits without paying any extra money. So if I decide I'm going to fail that class, I can't just decide to do that class alone. I have to do at least 12 credits because even my last year, I only had 11 credits to complete my to get my degree, but I ended up and did like 14 credits because it was just cheaper to be a full-time student than to be a part-time student and have to go through all the, the visa woes or whatever the case may be. So even in school, yes, but it was more so that I have to work. I felt like I had to work harder even when I graduated from college because then I was on what you call a optional practical training and a lot of employers don't want to deal with that. A lot of employers don't want to say, okay, you have a, a year to work in the country. I'm not hiring you. Or you uh, because I did a STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I could extend that to two and a half years so when an employer say, yes, I'm going to hire you, you felt like, okay, no, I have to work a little bit harder because in order for me to stay, if I want to stay, the employer now would have to get an H-1B work visa for you to continue work once your, once your OPT expires. So you felt like, yeah, I have to work a little bit harder to get mm -hmm. stuff done. So, and most people, most Caribbean immigrants, if they're going to leave the islands to come to the US. They they're gonna come with a mentality that they're gonna work hard because yeah. the US the, the US immigration system is expensive. Mm -hmm. I, I and time know, consuming too. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can talk about how much money I spend, you know, just to get my OPT. You know, you know, I think the initial one was like hundred and fifty dollars and you know it was another hundred and fifty dollars to or more to extend it. And that's just the application, you know, talking about the biometric applications and all the stuff that you have to pay for. Yeah, when, you, when you take your pictures and fingerprint. And then when, when you go to the H-1B, that's another more X amount of money. Then when you go to your green card, that's another, another set of money. Yeah. Set of money. Mm -hmm. And then finally, if you get to the point where you're qualified for citizenship, that's another set of money again. And so to do it legally, which was my goal, because if I'm going to stay, I always want to be legal. You, you constantly have to be spending money to the USCIS just to maintain your legal status. So yes, they will definitely work harder. But when it but so when it comes to working hard, I'm not saying that African Americans don't work hard. I'm just saying that the reason why most Caribbean Americans would come to this country and work hard is because you're leaving one place, come to another place, you realize you have to work you hard. You have to. And and for many of them for many of them, not just for Caribbean folk, but for many of them, going back is not an option. They might be leaving because of, you know, war or maybe s severe circumstances or whatever. Well, going back on, is not an option. Depends on the island. Depends on the island. Depends on the island. Like when my parents came and they, they worked hard and they worked those menial jobs like housekeeping and all that sort of thing. But they also opened up their own business. They're businessmen and women. And they, they set the example of working hard and striving and, and just do or die. You got to get it done. And so... Uh, like you said, a part of that has to do with the whole process of coming in. It costs so much. There's, it takes so much time. You, it's, it, you really can't afford to fail kind of mentality. And so that, that's probably why perhaps it's hard for people with, within, uh, okay, okay, let me backtrack. When people are talking about the so-called African-American culture, they seem to be lumping all black people into that particular culture. 
but what we're pointing out is like if you even if you were to look at a subset of the so-called african-american culture the um, um caribbean um immigrants who come to this country i i can't remember what coleman hughes said the percentage was but but like compared to the uh regular african-american like 70 percent i think it was a, a i don't remember exact what it's in the audio, but I don't remember exactly how much percent. But they do make more. Yeah, than their, they succeed the, more than they 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 have a higher rate of graduation from college and right. high school. Make more in money in a system in a system that wouldn't be able to tell by looking at them exactly. if they were if they were black or Caribbean. They wouldn't be able to tell, right? But or African American, so called, and Caribbean. But Caribbean, yeah. we we are kind of forced to manage our money. I remember growing up, yeah. And if you ask ask my mom for something. Our mom would make it clear to us whether or not she can afford it. Yeah. You know, My make it clear. Yeah. Make it, well, we can, I can afford this, but I still have to put food on the table. I have to do X. So maybe you have to wait. So we grew up with the mentality. And I hope, and that's something I want to put in my kids mm-hmm. as well. Grew up in the mentality that, hey, yeah, I understand you, you would like to have this, but these set of things are more important. Mm-hmm. You might have to wait for that. So when it comes to money, you know, goes most, back of, to that culture, most, that value. most of the mm-hmm. time, we, you know, you're from the islands. You know how to manage your money. You know that, hey, there's some things that are way more important Absolutely. than getting the new car, the new shoes, yeah. the new clothes. Look at my parents. My parents raised five kids in this country. We were never on government assistance that I could ever remember. We were never on government. That means you, you really know how to manage your money very well. And contrast that to the um, statistic that I named before where you've got $500 billion in purchasing power in the, in the African-American community in an average household of, of 50, 50K. But what are they doing? They're buying new cars in six months and new clothes every every week. That That's a complete contrast that I guess we need, can talk about. Another thing we need to point out when it comes to money comparing their, their Caribbean culture or the Caribbean way of managing money to maybe the African-Americans is that a lot of the the African Americans that are in poverty or poor in 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 this country will probably be, be middle class in the in some oh, islands yes. in some islands in the Caribbean. Oh yes. So you might think that okay, I live in a three bedroom home or whatever the case may be. I can't. I'm making fifty thousand dollars per year, but if you take that to the islands, that that's a middle class mm-hmm. income, a middle class wage. And again, things when it comes to certain you know, food or whatever the case may be, the the averages might be a little bit different. A lot of a lot of at least from the island I am from, a lot of folks though tend to get mortgages. So they tend to build their house slowly. Mm-hmm. So you know so that, that large chunk of your income is not going towards the housing. Mm-hmm. Um so that's that's a little bit different. A lot of folks, because the islands are small as well, you get you can get around you can get around a lot easier without a car. So you mm-hmm. don't have the that car payment to worry about. You don't have a and then my mom never had a mortgage. My mom built her house slowly. So because she did that, she did, she never had a mortgage, she never had a car, and she never had a car loan. But so. then that's a difference in value, right? In in, in the African-American culture, you, you, you got to have it now. You got to have that nice thing right now. Whereas compared to your mom, she never had a mortgage because she built her home very slowly. My father, when, when he bought our house, 
he paid it off. I'm pretty sure he paid it off 15 years early, if I'm not mistaken. He paid the house off very early. And I remember it was like this big thing. Like we got together as a family, we prayed and we thanked God for it. And we had King Vitamin and food and everything. And because that was that value, it was, it was about, it wasn't about having nice shoes, nice clothes, nice, all of these things And we were always fed. We were always clothed. We didn't have the best things, but we, 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 we were cared for, but he knew that being chained to the bank with a mortgage for like 30, 40 years, however long people have mortgages for, was not the way to succeed. And he wanted that for his children. He wanted to have that. Uh, but the, see, that's a difference in value when we right. compare them, the compare and contrast. And even even under the, the issue of race, mm-hmm. you know, the Caribbean tend to be mostly black. So we we I never grew up seeing race, the person race, as the first thing I noticed about the person. It seems to be when I came to the U.S., it seemed like most of the time they see your race first. And I'm not saying this is positive or negative. It's just that in the islands, most people don't see your race first. And that could be because the, the community is mostly 99.9% black. So who cares? You know? You know? Right. And, in, and I guess in the U.S. where their population is so mixed, you can, you can say, okay, I can understand that. But we don't we i never grew up identify people by their race first yeah. and that's a, a big difference between you know the caribbean american and the african american american the so called african american i keep saying so called because the term african american is just so not accurate but when we say african american we i guess we just mean in this color. but see here's the thing as well about the issue of race i understand that there's a history of of race that has a negative connotation in this country, which is probably why race is such as at the forefront of our national conversation. Um, but the the overemphasis of it, I think, is what you're referring to. Like, right, right. Okay, I see what you're saying. Right, and it, so race is is we tend to look at race a little bit differently, but also music. They, of course, yeah. there's some overlap. There's some overlap because a lot of the American type of music is definitely in the caribbean Mm -hmm. but the caribbean does have its own flavor of music and if you think about stuff like reggae and compare it even though i don't necessarily i don't listen to reggae if you look at the the lyrics of reggae and compare it to the lyrics of some of the major music artists in the african-american community you can see exactly some of the things why why some of the folks may end up and spend more money to mm-hmm. look like these music artists. Mm-hmm. But when it compared to reggae, where you might say it's a little bit more conscious in terms of they're not necessarily talking about the flashy cars and the woman and all the stuff. It's more of, you know, if you think about the Rastafarian and all that stuff, even though I'm not, I'm not promoting it, but it, it doesn't tend to lead to a life where you spend more money mm-hmm. and all that stuff. There's some there's some overlap because when they talk about dance hall, which is predominantly Jamaican, you, you, you can com- and compare that to Cardi B music. Well, they, they can put kind of on the same level. They they both of them are dirty, but it, when it comes to Calypso, Calypso is more like political satire most of the time. When you think about that, or you might talk about struggles in the islands or whatever. But you, it doesn't reach to the point where it is. It is bringing down the people to a point where their 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 life is drastically affected by this artist or this musician to the point where they are going to spend money 
trying to be like be what like they him see. or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. I mean, I, I mean, that could be because I the, the community, the island I grew up in, celebrities weren't such a big deal. I remember um, there was a there was a Jamaican that migrated to my island, and he was playing football, what you guys call soccer. <laughs> he was playing football with a well-known West Indian cricketer. Mm-hmm. And he called home back to Jamaica and said, oh, I was playing football with such and such. And to us, he was like, and, you know. So what? Big deal? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't really <laughs> anything because, but yeah, he's a big celebrity, but we don't, you it's, don't not, it's not like up here where, you know, that's like saying, "Oh, I played basketball with LeBron James." And people be like, "Oh, yeah, whatever." Yeah, it's, it's so not. Yeah, the, was, yeah it, it's, I see. It's a good. Yeah, if up here, if someone sees LeBron James, they're pulling out their phone, they're taking pictures. They, you know, but in the islands, celebrities is like you're one of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't expect you to change because you become a famous sport person. So that the, the, the culture is different there as well. So celebrities don't have such a big influence. In the life of everybody, because we the idolatry is not right, there. We just view them as one of us. I see. And if you make it, we are all proud of you. If you make it on the big stage, I know there's a a guy that grew up, essentially my next door neighbor. neighbor he make it to the West Indies side, and I asked my mom, he, "Is he and still cricket?" Or, yeah. Uh-huh. And I asked my mom recently, "Is he still living, basically two house down from us?" And she said, "Yes, he's right there." Mm. Yeah, but now he. Basically, he make it an international side, and he's famous, but he's still living right there. And we don't, we just don't yeah. do that. That would be like Levin James living next door to you, and he's like, oh, okay, whatever. See, the contrast there in the so-called African-American culture is that people assume that once you've made it, once you're this celebrity, you, you're you almost deified, and people kind of look to you, and, and you're not even, like, most of, the, most of these, most of these famous black people in the, in the country, in the African, so-called African-Americans in this country, they can't go back home and live home. They can't go back and live to the neighbor, in the neighborhoods where they, where they came from. No way. They can't even live among the people they grew up with because of this deification of these people. Like when they speak, it's, it's gospel truth. Like the, the, the very famous people. I know growing up, we, the only reason why we would, we would ever be starstruck is because we grew up in the culture. And so it, it, that's just part of the culture you're, 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 but, but that, that wasn't, that wasn't a, a, a tenet of how we live necessarily. Whereas I would say in the African-American culture, that's, that's part of the meat and bones of their culture. These people who they consider to have quote made it. And, um, What's interesting about the black, uh, the so-called African American culture is that the culture comes out of a majority of people in the culture would say that the culture comes out of the struggle, what they call the struggle. So um, the struggle against slavery, the struggle against uh, civil rights uh, um, 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 injustices, are the the struggle, the struggle, the struggle, and in in. In the African American uh, way of looking at things, it's impossible to separate the two. This is why they come up with terms like appropriation. If you can make money off of the culture, but you had nothing to do with the struggle, that's apparently that that's basically appropriation. Um, but see, one of the things that I find that's a, that that I can contrast between, say, for example, the Caribbean uh, immigrant culture and the Black culture is that for the most part, their struggle doesn't define them like that. 
typically we rise above that struggle. And I don't think that African-American culture has found a way to genuinely rise above. Well, I, I think, to be fair to the African-American culture, I think they can and some have. But I think go back to a lot of the leaders won't, won't profit off of them rising. So a lot of the leaders, I blame, I blame most of the leaders that mm-hmm. keep keep the keep them down. But and the churches who aren't teaching the truth to exactly. help them raise, yeah, exactly, because, which is also leaders. You're right. But I also want to make clear, there even there are multiple islands in the Caribbean, and all of us have all different things in our culture that we do differently. True. So even there are similarities, it, but there are also within, differences. Even within so. the islands, we are still we still have difference in, differences in our culture. Um, but another thing I want to touch on is patriotism because mm-hmm. Carib- caribbean people tend to be very patriotic uh, compared to like for instance you want to get a jamaican man go say something about jamaica <laughs> you know i'm just remembering that joke you see that button you know when me push that button so you know and that's true throughout the caribbean and I, and I don't know how patriotic their african-american culture is but it seems not to be as as patriotic as even other Americans. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the Caribbean and stuff like that, because, for instance, when we are competing in the islands, we are, com- are competing against, you know, inter-island competition. It's a fierce competition. Mm-hmm. But when you, come to the, when you come to the U.S. and you see another Caribbean person, you forget all about the competition that you have in the islands in terms of sport, whether it's cricket or football or whatever the case may be. That's your Caribbean brother. You know, it doesn't matter. Oh, you're saying that. So so when the Caribbean nations go up head to head in their own nations, there's like fierce competition. Right. But if there's a Caribbean person competing, say, on the U.S. stage, like, say, in the Olympics or something, doesn't matter if he's Trinidadian right. or Jamaican right. or whatever, for, you're rooting for him. Right. I see for what instance, you're saying. But not, not even just that, because during the Olympics, it doesn't matter where in the Caribbean you're from. Mm-hmm. Most Caribbean folks are rooting for the Caribbean person. I see. I so see. if So if, if, if you're from Jamaica, but there's no Jamaican running in, let's say, the their 400 meter dash or whatever whatever you want to call it you're rooting for that chili in because he's your caribbean brother sure but but also when you meet each other in the u.s when you meet each other outside of the caribbean it's more like there's this bond mm-hmm. like that's my caribbean brother that's mm-hmm. my caribbean sister or whatever it, and we can pick out each other most of the folks might say okay well all of you have the same accent not really if you, if you jamaican stone a lot different from where i'm from so a lot different from Trinidadians, so a lot, lot different from Barbadians. You know, we all have all different accents. We all have a different, different dialects and different words we use because we make fun of each other all the time. But and yet, there's this unity. There's this right, patriotism that you're right. describing. When you, when you definitely come out of of the Caribbean, you'll find that. Does that come from? Where where do you think that comes from? I wonder from a share because uh, African American people and I I keep putting that in quotes. They are I don't want to say they're not patriotic, but compared to say like the rest of America, they're not. In fact, right now we would we could make the argument that they're actively seeking to tear the country down with affiliation with Black Lives Matter and all that sort of thing. So, do you think that with um with folks coming from the Caribbean, is it sort of like a shared history or is it a sh- just a shared uh, um, geographic uh, sort of tying together? Where I you think just... I think it's a it's a somewhat a 
all those things may be true, but I think also is a shit culture in a thing. Okay. Because even though all culture, the values we were just describing, right. I see what even you're saying. Even though there's, okay. there's a lot of stuff that's maybe different in terms of some of the food or the way we prepare the food might be a little bit different. Some of the things that we say might be a little bit different. We also do realize that we have a shared culture. So, and plus, we can understand each other's accents. So, we don't have to, <laughs> we can be ourselves, I guess. Because, you know, even when I was in college, a lot of the Caribbean folks kind of just gravitate, gravitate together, mm-hmm. regardless of where you're from in the Caribbean. So, and I, and, I, and I saw that over and over and over again while I was in college, you know. Someone come up, oh, there's this new such and such coming up. I even have friends that will that would email me and say, "Hey, I have a friend leaving this island that and I don't know the friend they're talking about, but they're coming up to this college you you're in. Make sure you go Reach meet them, them or whatever yeah. the case may be." So, and I have done that for for a number of folks and they didn't, they didn't even come from the islands that island I'm from. They come from some place in the Caribbean, but I got some kind of a memo or an email or something saying they're coming up and I will go and introduce myself show them how around the campus or whatever, just because they're from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. But um, but I don't want to... But when you, when you compare and conscious the, the, the Caribbean-American culture and African-American culture, you see Coleman Hughes, even though he was more talking about systemic racism, wherein that you cannot identify by just looking at the person, whether the person is Caribbean right. or African-American. But, and he was saying whatever X was, and I'm thinking, I think is a lot of difference in the cultural makeup, a lot of differences yeah. in the, just the way we, we approach life the completely values. in terms of the way we hang with money, maybe sometimes even some of the music we listen to, and just, and I think, and I mentioned also the American opportunity. There's a great opportunities in this country that don't exist. And even, I wouldn't even say they don't exist. Some of them exist. Does still exist in the abundance mm, I see. as they are here. For instance, as a software engineer, I could have gone home and work as a software engineer. But how many opportunities would I have to change a change company and go to another company? I could have worked for the government with who I software engineers. I could have worked for a, a handful of other companies. But that's just a handful. Mm-hmm. In the area where we live, I can change job every every two years, every year, if I want to, without having to return to the same company because the opportunities are there in abundance. Whereas in the, in the islands, sometimes the opportunity might not be there. I remember when I was doing my associate degree, I did my associate degree in an island, and my professor was saying to me that he went away and study, came back with his software engineering degree, and he went to several companies to show them a software he wrote that could help them better the company and all of them shut him down and says all of them shut him down and say we we outsource our software our software needs and to wherever they, they outsource their software needs and they don't they don't need his expertise basically so even on the, even on the islands when because he might come back with a software engineering degree but how many people would have a software degree engineering degree that they can actually hire the amount that they need to actually get stuff done. So they find it easier to outsource. So the opportunities the opportunities are not there in that abundance. So as we move on from the comparing and conscious of the of the African American culture 
and the Caribbean culture, are there any other way that we are modeling? I think that the the African American, so-called African American culture, is a monolith in the sense of, you know, basically spiritually. I would say it's 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 very interesting because one of the questions that we asked before is that are the ills that are facing this culture are they uh, are the African Americans are is it cultural or is it racial? And it, we, I would have to say that it's cultural, the music, the values, how we handle money, uh, all of these different things. Many people celebrate so-called African-American culture as being this wonderful, beautiful, multifaceted thing in spite of the difficulties of slavery, Jim Crow, and all these different things. And that's true. But it's sad because in many ways it's it's fairly hollow. It's a culture that doesn't, uplift them beyond the struggle that gives rise to that culture and it's because the culture is i go back to the whole idea of beholding the man the culture is not beholding what is good what is holy what is pure what is what is good some elements are good like the the devotion and love to family loyalty friendship all those different things are very important in african-american culture big time but those those values that um that are eternal I, I think are lacking and, and, and you could see it in how they, you could see it in how they talk. Like, for example, I remember seeing a, um, I think it was either a video or a picture of a, of a uh, billboard, a black lives matter billboard that said something along the lines of white people do something. In other words, um, you are eighty something percent, seventy something percent of the population. We're only I think they're actually sixty percent or so. Sixty percent or so. Right. We're only thirteen, fourteen, fifteen percent of the population. We can't change the situation. You have to do something in order to help lift us up out of this situation. And I'm thinking, how sad is that? Because if the African American culture beheld the truths that we hold so dear in Scripture. God could single-handedly lift us up beyond our struggle, but we're looking to others. We're looking to our culture. We're looking to so-called the white man. And I say so-called to lift us up. And, and it's, it's simply not necessary. Um, I, I think of, um, I think of a, a former slave. Um, she didn't live to be very long, Phyllis Wheatley. And, um, people like her, People like her are, in many ways, uh, I don't want to say demonized, but looked down on because like Booker T. Washington, like Frederick Douglass, she was one of those black people that didn't think that being handed things or being supported by the surrounding culture was the way to be lifted up out of slavery. Um, listen, I, I'd like to read a quick poem about what she said about being taken out of her pagan land. She said, this is the poem on being brought from Africa to America. She's a, she's a slave bought and sold slave. Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption, neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. 
their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. In other words, you don't, through God, through Christ, through the scriptures, you can be lifted up beyond the struggle. And I, I keep mentioning the struggle because African-Americans in this culture, they, in America, they view their culture, the good that comes out of their culture as tied to their struggle as if they can't be defined by anything else. They have to be defined. Like you, you, like this whole, this goes back to the whole, uh, Biden's quote about being black enough. If, if you're not considering the struggle, you ain't black. That's that underlying idea. And yet Christ gives us the possibility to be lifted up beyond that. And that's, that's in some ways, spiritually, we're a monolith because we're still, when you're not saved, you're in that, you're in that monolith. And so I think in that particular way, when we don't know the truth of the gospel and we're still kind of wallowing down, just reaching up and trying to grasp for things, we're in that that spiritual monolith of not knowing the truth of the gospel, the truth of God. Yeah, I would definitely agree that spiritually that we're monolith, not just the African-American community, whether Caribbean or African-American people born here, but all humankind. Yes, we are monolith. We are all born a monolith. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are all of Adam's race, the human race, the fallen race. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered in the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Who is that one man? That one man is Adam. Adam sinned. He disobeyed God. Adam, as the first created human God tell him not to eat of the fruit of the garden. He did. And that plunged the human race into, into sin. We are all sinners. Again, you can look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So yes, spiritually, we are definitely all a monolith in terms of the fact that we are all sinners. And we, because of Adam's original sin. And also because of our own sin. If Adam didn't sin, one of us probably would have sinned al- mm-hmm. already. So not because of Adam's sin, but because of our own sin as well. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned, not just Adam, but all of us, and come short of the glory of God. And that simply means that we have missed the mark. God God said that the, the, you have to hit bullseye, and you have not hit that red bullseye. So you have missed the mark. Also, spiritually, we all can be set free from the monolith of sin. And the consequences to Jesus Christ. So one man sinned. We were born into sin. And therefore by one man. Or by by Jesus. We all can be saved. And you see that in Romans chapter 5. Verse 17 to 20. Said, for, for if by one man's offense. Death reigned by one. Much more. They which receive abundance of grace. And of the gift of right, righteousness. Shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man disobedient many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might be might abound. But where sin abound, grace did much more abound. 
that as sin had reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just comparing conscience, the Bible is saying that Adam did this because of Adam's sin, because of our sins, we are condemned. But because of what Jesus Christ did for us, we can have life. We can have, we can have his righteousness through, through eternal life. So yes, we might be one because of Adam's sin, but we also can be one in Jesus Christ. And, and we can accomplish that through, through God's love. God loved us even while we were yet in our sin. So yet while we were in our sin, while we were still being unlovely, God still loved us even through that sin. And we think about Romans 5 verse 8 and 9, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall save from, from the wrath through him. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. Yes, we were all plunged into sin by one man and we were all condemned because of that sin and because of our sin. But we all can be saved from that wrath because God, while we were yet in our sin, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin. How then can we be saved? We can be saved through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. But show first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should do what? Repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Think about Acts 17 and verse 30. 30 and the Bible says, And the times of the ignorance God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. We can break this spiritual monolith, this spiritual sin that is in all of us by simply repenting, turning from, from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ. We're basically turning from the direction we're going and we're turning to Jesus Christ who can save us from the sin and, and the judgment to come. Think about Romans chapter 10 verse 9 to 13. And he said, this is the word that we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Not might, not maybe, but shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Spirit said, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no, no difference between the Jews and the Greeks. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me read that again. For there is no difference, the Bible says, between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. Mm. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What the Bible is saying here, if we repent... And trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. We all can be saved through him. We can all break that monolith. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Jesus Christ. 
if you want to be a monolith, we can be a monolith without one in Jesus Christ. Would you trust him today? Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us or to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm forward slash removing barriers. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.